Hi there, listener, and welcome to episode 67 of the Ski Podcast. Uh, firstly, I'd just like to thank Switzerland Tourism for supporting us. Uh, we wouldn't be able to put this on uh, without them. And don't forget that uh, you can never miss an episode by subscribing uh, to the Ski Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and you can even listen to us on your smart speaker. Now, today we've got some really interesting topics. We're going to be going behind the scenes at Ski Sunday. Uh, we're going to be talking to ski industry veteran Peter Hardy, find out what's been happening at the snow centre during lockdown and about craft beer in the Alps and revealing some of the results from our survey. And I'm joined today by two guests. I have Chemi Alcott, BBC presenter from Ski Sunday. Hi, Chemi. How are you? Hi, very good. How are you? Uh, good. You're joining us from Lax today, aren't you, in Switzerland? I am. I am a very fortunate lady right now. Sorry. Yeah, you did tell us it was snowing. Uh, and Ian Brown, who is managing director of the Snow Centre in Hemel Hempstead. So I guess theoretically you have you have snow uh, on your back door as well. Is that right, Ian? We have some great snow, indeed. Excellent. Well, we're going to be talking about that a little bit more uh, as we go on. But let's start by asking uh, my favourite question for my guests. When did you last ski? So, Chemi, I guess it's probably going to be the soonest for you. Go on, break our hearts. When did you last ski? I know, this is really difficult because um, I feel really guilty for, for telling anyone that I'm having an amazing time. I am out here working. I'm going I'm, I'm to pave the way for this. Okay? I am out here working. Um, it's an amazing opportunity. It's been my dream to present Ski Sunday. Um, I am in a solo bubble, so I'm spending a lot of time alone without my family, without anyone. Um, I haven't touched anyone forever in, in a very positive way. Um, but I did get chest-deep powder this morning. Like, I choked. I choked on the powder. Um, it was really crazy. and But since then, it has rained. Um, and I think we got the, the best of the few hours. Um, but yeah, the snow out here, it was crazy this morning. OK, well, that's made us feel really good. And this will be the second podcast in a row now after our, our last episode when we had Andy Butterworth reporting about chest deep powder in St Anton. It's really all happening to make us uh, uh, feel uh, bad. But Ian, tell me, when did you last go skiing? Well... Funnily enough, I skied on Sunday because we had that dump <laughs> of snow, didn't we, Saturday night? So yep. myself and my wife on Sunday lunchtime took our skis around the back of our house to a couple of fields, walked across, yomped across a couple of fields where there was a, a little bit of a slope to go down, a little bit of slush, a bit of grass and just enough snow to get a couple of runs down. So for an hour, we had a great time. <laughs> So, well, that is that is brilliant, Ian. I'm, I mean, I know there has been snow across a, a lot of the UK and we're going to talk about, you know, some of it that's been indoors as well as outdoors later on. But um, sadly, we didn't get any down here in Brighton, but our time will come. Now, we have been talking on the podcast a lot about when we are going to get the chance to uh, ski next. And we've kind of addressed it in almost every single episode. And as uh, time passes, we don't seem to be getting any nearer. So we're not going to go into that in any detail this time. But I, I just want to make a small note. In the last episode, 66, we did mention someone who was denied boarding at Eurostar and they, they had a pair of skis. And I thought, well, this is ridiculous. Well, you know, what are they doing turning up in lockdown to Eurostar? But that turned out to be part of a, a bigger story because it, they turned out to be part of a group who were heading out to Verbier for a training course. So they were going to learn how to uh, or to get a Bayesi qualification. And therefore, they checked that out with a French consulate. Uh, apparently, they were entitled to travel because it's employment and training. 
But the story wasn't just that, because they ended up going to Valocine in France to reduce their quarantine, because they could quarantine, I think, for seven days in France rather than the 10 in Switzerland. And typically, even though they all had negative tests before going out to France, they turned out to test positive on arrival or, or in France shortly after arrival. And that has caused uh, some more negative uh, news. But um, tracking back to that original uh, article about uh, someone trying to get onto Eurostar, they had checked it with the French consulate. They were entitled to uh, travel. And that's why they were going. So uh, if you want to find out more about that, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at Skipedia. But let's be more positive. Talk about the vicarious pleasures of having Ski Sunday on our screens again. And really exciting to have you with us, Chemi. Um, you mentioned it on the show. I've, I've watched every episode so far, as I'm sure many British skiers have. Um, but there's been a lot of um, uh, regulations and hoops you've had to go through to be able to make the show happen this year. I wondered if you could just give us some insight into that. Well, I'm I'm so lucky to even be part of the show. So I knew when Graham had gone to Dancing on Ice, I got the call up then. Um, and then I happened to be in Switzerland. I think I got here on the 10th of December for work beforehand. And we still hadn't decided what format the show was going to be in. We had plan A, B, C to hmm. infinity. And one of them was to present the show from the UK. So we, we Ian, I don't know if you, kn you knew this, but one of the options was to do UK snow domes. And the option below that was to go in the studio in the UK. But actually it turned out that that was higher risk because the other two who are essential to this tiny small bubble we've got out here is Ed Lee and Chris Kirkham and they were coming from New Zealand. So actually they were flying into Switzerland. I was already in Switzerland. So to uphaul us and bring us to the UK would have been a higher risk. So I know it was really difficult the first few shows to find that right tone. And, you know, we didn't want to rub it in people's faces that we were here. We put it out there quite a lot before the show. And actually everyone said they wanted the escapism to see, you know, the normal scenery that, they, that they're missing. And it, and it was very difficult to not rub in, I'm here and you're not. Um, and I'm so fortunate to be here. And, you know, I'm promising everyone left, right and centre that I'm doing turns for them. But we, it, was, hmm. it was difficult with that tone. And it was just, I was just so lucky. I mean, if I hadn't have been in Switzerland, um, I wouldn't be part of the show. So I'm really fortunate that the stars aligned and, and I could be, because obviously it's been my dream to be part of the show forever. Well, that's great. I mean, you have been part of the show for quite a while, I think, because I've certainly seen a whole bunch of features. And last year, you did the Inferno and had a long feature about that. Am I right in saying that you were at one point you were considering basing yourselves in St. Anton? I wonder what tipped the scales towards Lax. Yeah. So, so Ed proposed Larks and I proposed St. Anton just for two different options, two different countries. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it came down to COVID protocols. Larks right. are really on it. And the fact that Larks has been running over an app system for nearly the whole resort from buying tickets to any food on the hill for, for quite a long time. So when you go to the restaurant at the top, you're not allowed indoors, um, as everyone knows, but you sit there and on your table, you order your food, you pay for your food, and then it comes out a hatch. So there's no, there's hardly any connection, human connections at all. Also, the fact that the bottom of Larks, um, I don't know if you guys have been, but there's a huge new gondola. Um, but there's also a little small bubble and a chair that takes you to the same place. So we can filter the kind of crowds that they're, they're operating at very low capacity right now. Um, I didn't see anyone out on the mountain this morning. It was really, really rare sights. So I think that that was a really big call. I, obviously, 
if we were here, we got to cover this big Larks Open, an amazing event. If we were in St. Anton, I might have got to do a camera run on the Women's Hill. So um, I love both resorts. I'd never been to Larks before, um, but they're they're treating us amazingly. And it's fun to be somewhere different. It's a very different mountain for me as an alpine skier to ski on. Um, Lots of rolly, mellow terrain. I think there's two steep slopes that I can say that I've ripped down. So um, it's fun. Excellent. Yeah, well, I've, I went out to Cromontana in December around the time that you arrived into Switzerland while it was still legal and possible to go over there. And all of the uh, systems they had in place there, I was very impressed with in terms of making sure there was social distancing as far as the lists are concerned. I mean, there were very few people out there, but also every time I went into a restaurant, there was an app you had to fill in and it's down to which table you're on. And so in terms of you know test and trace, it wasn't a, an option uh, there. You had to do all of this information you mentioned the course run there you would have you would have done that in St Anton that was going to lead on to one of my next questions because obviously Graham has previously done a lot of the course runs would you have done these course runs if uh, if you've been able to then um I've been training up for it for about six months um I think physically I could do it um I have to let go of my ego because the reason I retired from being a racer myself is that if I crash at speeds now my right leg which I've historically broken a lot of times won't handle it and they would have to amputate my leg from my knee down because I don't have any bone there so you know it's something that I want to be prepared for if there's an opportunity Graham does it so well I wouldn't want to Uh, replace what he brings to the show at all Um, but I think it's a really fun challenge and you know I'm a mum of two now I'm reaching near 40s I think it would be really fun to try and still do it but from an entertainment point of view not a racer's point of view (laughs) yeah well you don't have to do it in that time but I'm always impressed that the ability to be able to ski what is however speed you, you do it a very difficult course and to be able to describe what's going on at the same time and that is uh yeah, that's a, a challenging skill. So maybe something that you'll take on perhaps next season for one of the courses? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm putting myself in a position, Ian, where I can be physically ready um, to try. It's really difficult, though, because there's no training opportunities. Um, you know, I'm a coach now, but when I set a course, it's not like I could go and have a few runs to check myself physically that I'm safe doing it. I'll only do it if I'm safe. You know, I'm not going to jeopardize being a mum to my boys or coaching my team um, just to have a go for my entertainment. But I would, you know, there's part of me that feels like I do have unfinished business and that would be a really nice kind of circle yeah. to end it with. I, I mean, I did wonder, I don't think the timing's worked out in the end, but, you, you know, you are allowed to travel within Switzerland. I don't think you're going out of Lax itself at the moment. Uh, have you considered going to the other resorts, say Cromontano, when they had the uh, the ladies uh, downhill there more recently? Yeah, like you said, it's not illegal, um, but we are completely trying to minimise any risk um, and COVID protocols by staying here. Uh, we only go. We've got we've got a separate car, so I've got my I bought my team van with me, and that's how I go to the supermarket. We don't cross over. Um, we're just trying to be as safe as possible. In fact, Ed and I are important to the show, but it's our cameraman who's the most important. Right. Because <laughs> um, he's just a legend. So you know, if something has happened to Ed or I, one of the others could sort it out um but it's zoid sorry chris kirkham who is <laughs> magic behind the camera and he would be you know he's right. but you do obviously see um you know ed and and uh, and chris 
while you're in Lax, because I saw on Twitter that you cooked him a very appealing meal the other day and took it round to him. <laughs> so actually, Ed is doing most of the cooking and bringing it to my door. But that evening, okay. I was like, I want to help. And um, my my brother's got this great pork recipe with pesto and parma ham. And I was like, oh, great. And I didn't realise I was supposed to cut it up. Before I cooked it, Ian, I'm not sure if you saw this, but um, I, I baked it in the oven and it was absolutely amazing, but it did look very phallic and um, <laughs> no one else ate any. I had to eat this whole phallic symbol myself over like three days. Yeah, it didn't it didn't look so good on Twitter, that's for sure. But you are still getting to to see your uh, uh, co-workers apart from just when you go out and film. Um, yeah, I mean, we can go out and see each other. In, uh, if we have a team production meeting, uh, we have it on Zoom, or we go out and we stand outside in the open. It's kind of right. weird, um, but yeah, that's maybe yeah. that's a new way of life, isn't it? Well, it certainly has been very different this year, and obviously it's very different for you as well, because you have uh, you know, a young family. I think it's a, a Lockie and Cooper, and I interviewed you just after Cooper was born when we talked about you know, your fitness regime and everything like that. They're in the Alps as well, I think. It, it must be quite difficult being apart from them. Yeah, they're actually in Switzerland as well. They're in Nanda. Um, so. Dougie's um, still coaching an athlete called Gigi uh, Gorringe, an amazing young talent who we've been coaching since the, the first lockdown. So I did all the physical training with her and then um, and she is doing remote schooling. She's a level year, incredibly talented academic student as well. Um, so he's coaching her. And obviously I'm here, which means the boys have to be out. And we've got an amazing nanny um, who's been living with us for a year. Uh, used to be an Ibiza girl and now has fallen in love with skiing, which is fantastic for us. <laughs> and yeah, Lockie, Lockie, I got, we got a massive turning point with Lockie recently. And I think everyone really knows I put the boys on skis quite early. I think Lockie was 15 months and the same for Cooper. But this year when we were in Finland and he was, uh, you know, almost four, so three and three quarters, he he found it. He got like the passion and I, I realized he'd been sandbagging for so long because when I let him go off his reins, he could turn and everything. Basically, I had this great tip because I took him to the to the park with all the rails in it and boxes and he had to turn around them. They were like, it was like, it was fun for him because he had these forced, um, you know, areas where he had to turn. So that was my, my top tip for kids. Just put them down the free ride park and then they have to turn or learn to jump. <laughs> Okay, well, maybe at some point, um, once you've finished your BBC side of things, then you'll be able to get together and he can try the half pipe or the super pipe as it is in, uh, in Lax. I've <laughs> got one final question for you, Chemi. Um, Graham, you mentioned before, he's obviously not on Ski Sunday this year because he's taking part in Dancing on Ice. Now, you are very experienced in that. I think you came fifth in, in the 2012 version of Dancing on Ice. So I wondered if you had any tips for, uh, for Graham to try and help him get to the latter stages. Um, so I said to Graham, it's all about entertainment. I think when athletes take on a talent show that involves learning a new skill, you see it very much as sport. And you're like, right, if I go to the gym and if I work on the rink, then I will be better. But actually, when it comes down to it, it's about your performance. And that's what we struggle with, There's especially Graham and I, people who have raced against the clock. So it's all about like looking to the camera, appealing to the audience at home. I mean, when I, when I came fifth and I got knocked out, uh, the guy who went on to win the show, Matt Wolfenden, said, oh, you would have been so much better if you'd, you know, looked to the camera and acted to the camera. And I'd done 10 weeks and I didn't even know where the cameras were. 
<laughs> I was so focused on the skating. So I think it's really important to, to you know, be tongue in cheek, but also know that it's it's about what the people at home see. Yeah, well, uh, I, we've seen his first. Did you see his uh, first dance oh, to yeah. the Ski Sunday uh, team? It was so <laughs> fun, really entertaining. But yeah, he's exactly. so hot. I remember yeah. I, I was, I was sweat perspiring. I'm a woman, sorry, so much. And the first show, I was so nervous that my lips actually stuck together on my first ever interview on Dancing on Ice. So he must have been baking in that thing. Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll see how he goes. Well, that's that's great, Jimmy. Thanks for giving us that uh, insight. And, you know, you're obviously lucky enough. You got to ski in the Alps and we know there's some really good snow uh, out there. We do have a couple of uh, updates from the Alps. I'm just going to uh, drop these in now. First one is from Bethany Garner. She appeared in episode 64. We talked about cross-country skiing and she's been cross-country skiing in Le Contamine. And just after that, uh, Charlie, our roving reporter in Switzerland, is going to be reporting a little bit about the avalanche risk situation in Switzerland. The best new Ghana here. Um, I'm in, currently in Le Contamine in the Haute-Savoie um, at the start of the Ski de Fond, the cross-country skiing area. As you might be able to hear, there are lots and lots of people. In fact, almost as many as I saw over the Christmas and New Year holidays. Um, amazing for the cross-country scene. Um, and everyone's being quite sensible, wearing masks, uh, trying to remain the distance but yeah it's um it's a good season for cross country there's been lots of snow the temperatures on the whole have remained cold um all the trails that look on Tamino are currently open and as i think is the case in in most of the ski uh, ski de fond areas so yeah um it's thriving is all i can say and it gives people the chance to actually do something outside because obviously the list is still closed um so in regards to that, as we have heard, the lifts uh, aren't going to open for February, February half term. I think not many people were surprised and we'll see whether they open at all this season in France. Um, I think unlikely, but let's see. Let's see what happens. Um, and obviously in France, we have got our 6pm curfew, which I think for a lot of people is is bearable at the minute. Um, a lot of people are staying in, in any way. I think if that 6pm curfew continues into the lighter evenings, uh, it might not be quite as easy um, but again we'll have to wait and see but I can report back um, we've got lots of snow we've had a few temperature fluctuations but on the whole um, it's been a, a very good winter for snow cross-country skiing is thriving people are enjoying themselves and I think everyone here knows they're very very lucky Hi all, this is Charlie with a brief update on the snow conditions out here in Switzerland and also some points to bear in mind with regard to staying safe when skiing off-piste. Uh, this weekend just gone, I took part in the ski touring course with the Mamu Alpine School focusing on tour planning uh, and avalanche safety. We were based on the Furka Pass, which is 10 kilometres west of Andermatt in the canton of Uri. Uh, and the pass road running up to 2,400 metres was used in the Bond film Goldfinger uh, and links the eastern Swiss... Alps with the canton of Valais in the west. So on the first day we skinned up from Rialp to the Hotel Tiefenbach uh, that lies at 2,000 metres on the pass road but is uh, cut off in winter and only reachable on foot or by skidoo. Uh, then the following morning we started out north towards the Albert Heimhutte below the Winterstock and from there toured along the edge of the Tiefengletscher under the Grossbielenhorn to the summit of the Hriebielenhorn. On the way down via the Sedelenhutte, there was a lot of evidence of wind slabs and snowdrift accumulations which can pose a serious avalanche risk. So that evening we practiced finding buried transceivers 
uh, as well as a technique for instigating a search, using the avalanche probe and finally digging out a victim. In an avalanche, most victims are buried at about 1.5 metres below the surface, and it's actually very hard work digging out that amount of compacted snow, even amongst four people working flat out. Uh, not to mention the time pressure, with the chance of survival rapidly falling off after 15 minutes of submersion. Uh, the guide actually said it would take 30 minutes for the rescue helicopter to arrive, and that was in very good weather conditions. Um, so it just makes you realise how scary it would be to actually be in that situation for real, and it means you must be absolutely confident with the procedure and have all the right kit with you before you even contemplate going off-piste. The following day, we uh, toured up to the Schafberg, uh, and then from there skied down into Rialp, which was a 1,000 metres below us. Uh, on the way down, we dug a snow analysis pit, and we were able to see the weak sugar granule-like layer one metre below the surface that's making the conditions this year so dangerous. Uh, 11 people have actually died in avalanches in Switzerland in the last two weeks, with the last two being experienced mountain guides. Uh, and the current avalanche warning level is 3 for the majority of Swiss Alps. Uh, as mentioned, the current dangers are most related to a, a bad concoction of old snow and also wind slabs. Remotely triggered avalanches are also possible, which means that you could be walking down in the valley and trigger an avalanche high on the mountainside above you. Uh, and additionally, it's possible for whole slopes to give way and not just for isolated avalanches to be triggered. Given this, you should avoid all off-piece slopes above a gradient of 30 degrees, which is about the same as a blue run or a gentle red run. Uh, and moreover, the avalanche danger areas are currently located on all slope aspects above 2,200 metres. Above 2,000 metres, the snow level is about 1.2 to 2 metres, uh, and the snowpack has very poor stability, especially in southern portions of the valley, which includes Verbier and Zermatt as well as the, in the canton of Graubünden, which uh, includes resorts such as St. Moritz, Flimslachs and Davos. Uh, more snow is on the way this week, so I would say that the avalanche risk could be heightened still further. But that's all from me for now. Stay safe, and if you're in any doubt of the risks, don't go down. Hi there, Ian here. Uh, just to confirm, Charlie was right, and the avalanche risk has increased considerably due to the extra snow, and it's now up to five in many areas across Switzerland. So if you are considering skiing anywhere in the Alps this week, please be very careful. So back to the UK then. Ian, you mentioned to us that you were skiing uh, in, in your back garden or just around the back. But obviously, uh, normally you would be skiing or running an operation that is indoor snow. I certainly hope it isn't going to be like this, but it might be the only chance us Britons have to ski on snow this year is to be in the UK. And we, we've talked about skiing in Wales on the podcast before and skiing in Scotland. But you can normally ski all year round indoors. So it's been a difficult year for all of us. I wondered how the snow centre has managed with the last 12 months. Well, obviously it's been challenging for everybody, including ourselves, not least, uh, you know, we're currently in the third lockdown, having attempted to open twice and just building a bit of momentum and then, you know, the closure coming again. Um, that said, you know, the first close down was the hardest, I think probably for everybody. Nobody knew the situation. Nobody knew how long it was going to last for. Guidelines were coming out around, you know, how to operate in such circumstances, you know, with social distancing and hygiene being the key elements. But a lot of it was quite ambiguous and being left to operators, you know, not just ourselves, but gyms and restaurants and hospitality to interpret the guidelines they felt were right for their business. This was compounded a bit, I think, because the, the restaurants opened before leisure generally was allowed to open. So with I thought, great, you know, we can go down to the local and see what 
things they put in place and then we can interpret that in our operation and a few a few of my team had also gone out in that first week and we all reported completely different experiences so we was probably none the wiser really um, so that said, it was down to us to come up with what we thought the plan should be. So after uh, lockdown one, when did you open again after that? Uh, 1st of August, we, we reopened. 1st of August, right, so we okay. We closed the 20th of March, and then we reopened on the 1st of August. Uh, reclosed again on the 5th of November. Um, opened on the 2nd of December, and then closed again on the 20th of December, just before the Christmas holidays. Yeah, I mean, that must be so difficult for you. And I'm thinking, you know, obviously, I know it's very seasonal, your business. So there are fewer people typically would come through in the summer. But uh, I guess your your peak period is probably right now. Would that be yeah, the case? Absolutely. And it's quite a surreal scenario. You know, we, we have a team call every week with the team at the moment to make sure everybody's feeling OK and looking after people. Uh, particularly this time of year with the dark nights and the normally sort of quite poor weather. And it's not lost on us that normally the centre would be packed, you know, great energy and a real passion and people being excited about the holidays and learning to go away, many for the first time. So, you know, to lose that is, is a real big thing. You know, the summer, not as busy. Um, and we were fortunate this summer, we were really busy. You know, I think um, clearly people are very passionate about snow sports. And, I, and I'm I think we are very fortunate that we are an industry that when we are allowed to, to start again, we should re re recover quite quickly, I think, because there's a pent up demand. People have really missed it um, and they really want to come back. And the thing with the lockdowns, of course, is you're then having to cancel bookings and rebook people in. And our customers and guests have been really, really supportive of us. And generally, when we say, look, unfortunately, you know, we're going to have to cancel your booking for next week or whatever with the closure. The basic response is, well, book us in for the day you reopen or the weekend you reopen. So. You know, there really is a sort of, as soon as we get this green light next time around, we'll be ready to go and uh, looking forward to welcome everybody back. Yeah, well, I think that is the case. And I agree with what you're saying about uh, British people, that the pent up demand that you're talking about, because so many people have missed out on their holidays towards the end of last season. And now it's looking like this season may be a complete write off. I mean, I, I'm one of the most optimistic people out there. I still hope that maybe we might be able to travel and to ski in, in March and uh, April. But it might be that uh, skiing in the UK is the only option. And in which case, it would not surprise me at all if you ended up with record numbers of people coming through your doors when it does open again. And I, I hope that would be the case. When you did open uh, back in uh, August, what kind of measures did you have in place that were different from your normal operations then? Well, obviously it was driven by the sort of two drivers of social distancing and, and hygiene and cleanliness. And having come up with a thousand and one different plans of how we might operate and changing them on a weekly basis, we sort of came up with a criteria that said, do we have to make some changes to satisfy COVID regulations and, and latest updates? Yes, no. Would this improve the guest experience? And three, when we can get back to normal, can we scale up these new changes so they become a permanent feature? So what's actually happened is I believe we've ended up offering an even better guest experience and taking the time that you don't normally get. Because as a business, like everybody, you're on a constant treadmill. You never get a chance to stop and look at how you operate or look at your procedures or look at how you work and take a step back. And then evaluate that and see what you can improve. So taking the positives out of what's been a really difficult situation, that's exactly what we did. Also fortunate to have uh, very uh, 
strong shareholders behind us who, who supported me with changes we wanted to make and investments we wanted to make. So we changed our whole booking process, online booking, online check-in. Um, so it's a much smoother transition coming in to get your tickets to get out on the slope. We completely changed the rental area into a one-way procedure. Um, so you go through and then out on the slope and come back the other way. We've reduced the capacities on the slope. So there's half the numbers now. So there's no real queues out there. The snow quality is even better because less people on it throughout the day means it, you know, degrades less as the day goes on. In fact, you know, it was, in reality, we've probably offered the best experience we ever have because, you know, you end up with a, you know, less people in the space. So you've got no queuing, smooth, smooth through each area, through rental onto the slope. And in the lodge upstairs in the bar area, we introduced the sort of click and collect concept. You order at the table, we bring the food to the table. So it's all online. And again, you know, much uh, slicker than, you know, maybe as the operation used to be. So, yes, it's been tough. I think it will be tough for a while, but I think it has given us the opportunity to make some investment and improve what I think was already a good experience into an even better experience going forward. That's great. So actually, um, if someone went or, you know, when you open again, the opportunity to go skiing there would mean that you actually get more skiing time in, more more bang for your buck as such, because presumably you'd spend less time actually queuing for the lift. Although, in my experience, that's never been particularly long anyway. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to put it into context, I mean, our normal slope capacity is 140. And certainly during our what we call super peak season, which is Boxing Day through till February half term, we have those eight weekends of madness as everybody gets ready to go away you know we pretty well run at that um and our capacity is 70 so you've literally got half the numbers out there so literally twice the space and um, there are restrictions on how many lessons we can offer at this time and what type of lessons so it all improves the experience that's great and so in, when you're in a situation for example between the 20th of march you mentioned and the first of august obviously you are the, the snow center in Hemel Hempstead is a massive freezer. Do you keep the snow all of that time? Do you like looking after it and maintaining it and updating it and grooming it? Or do you just let it go and then recreate it? What's the situation for, for the snow culture? It is still there and it's in fantastic condition. So in, in simple terms to melt it, we could melt it, um, but it would take around 10 weeks to rebuild the ice base and build it back up to a, to, you know, to an operating standard. So, and in reality, we're not going to be given 10 weeks notice to, to do that. So the downside is obviously, as you've just mentioned, it's a big fridge and it costs a lot of money to keep that refrigerated. So, you know, we're still having incurring quite high energy costs while we're closed to do that. Uh, Wilco, our technical manager, you know, our snowman, he's going in twice a week and we groom it once a week. Because, yeah, you want to keep the snow fresh, you want to keep it churned, you want to keep it looking great, and it snows once a week as well. So, you know, we've, we've reduced clearly the amount of snow making and, and sort of turnover, but that's still happening so that when we can reopen, it will be absolutely tip top. And it's fair to say a couple of the team, I think, have been in from time to time and be able to have a little sneaky ski on their <laughs> own slope. I was going to ask you if anyone had been in there, because I think elite sport is often able to continue in certain areas maybe have any of the elite athletes come into practice as well and would they already have placed themselves in the outs before no, we started? during closure we haven't had that i mean we did take the the chance or the opportunity to change our program a bit when we did reopen 
Uh, we were on reduced opening hours simply because of reduced numbers and viability. So, for example, on the Sunday night, we did open it up for race training and had groups coming in, which is something we wouldn't normally do. And while we're closed, we have had film crews in. In fact, we've got a film, a filming going on tomorrow, because as Shemi probably knows as well, you know, filming can still take place in indoor facilities during this period. So we are having a few inquiries and taking the opportunity, because, again, that's something we can't normally do because to close the centre for a day for a film crew to do a, you know, one hour shoot or something just isn't viable. But now it clearly is. So that's created a, a different uh, opportunity for us. OK, that's interesting. Dare I ask what it is that they are filming? Um, off the top, honestly, off the top of my head, I, I can't remember what it is tomorrow that's coming in. We, we do everything from, you know, we have TV programmes coming in. We have we've had film crews coming in for Hollywood films where they're trying to do, um, you know, snow shots and things. Um, and we have adverts and catalogue shoots as well from time to time. What it is particularly tomorrow, I'm not quite sure. What does amaze me, and again, Shemi probably knows this, is the amount of filming that needs to be done compared to what the final edit actually is you know there can be hours and hours and hours and lighting's put in and rigs put up and you've got makeup teams i mean you've got all sorts going on for what maybe turned out to be a four or five minute shoot it, it, it amazes me what do you think about that chemi given that you're surviving in, in uh, uh, lax at the moment with just yourself another presenter and a cameraman <laughs> Ian, when you watch the opener this Sunday, I did a whole day filming in a cat suit as my alter ego, the racer, for the opening links um, at minus 27. A whole day. I reckon you'll see me on TV in my cat suit for 10 seconds. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. That's that's great. But what you're telling me, Ian, is that, uh, you know, probably if you look closely next time you visit the uh, snow centre in Hemel, you might see Tom Cruise in the background somewhere. Is that what you're saying? Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Can I ask you one more question? Of There's course. another project which I believe you're involved with as well, which is to do with the creating a new snow centre in Swindon. And I think the work was due to start on that around uh, a year ago. I wondered how that's progressed during lockdown or if there's uh, if that's still on track to uh, to open at some point down the track. Um, well, I'm really sorry to say that the, pro the project is no longer um, progressing. The, the challenge with, with this, and you know, I'm sure you, you guys have seen it, speculation about centres across the UK and more centres opening is, is, is the financial viability twofold. One is the cost. These are not cheap to build and they are profitable in the long term, but, but you know, it does take a long time to get that kind of return on significant investment. So there are high barriers to entry to come in. And the Swindon scenario we were really excited about. We thought the Southwest Market, M4 corridor, going down to Bristol, west of London, down from Oxford, great, you know, great location. Uh, and it wasn't just us. There was uh, Hollywood Bowl. There was Empire Cinemas. You know, there was quite a few you know, well-known, high-regarded operators wanting to come in. But unfortunately, it came down to finance in the end. And that was proving tough during normal times. And obviously, COVID comes along. And then the developers behind the, the, the scheme were really finding it difficult. So, look, we remain optimistic. We have ambition. We, we'd love to open more. We think there's an opportunity to open more, you know, maybe in a better economic climate. But, uh, you know, let's see what happens over the next couple of years. 
Okay, well, we'll uh, we'll definitely keep you posted on the uh, on the ski podcast about that. And in the meantime, Ian, I wish you all the best and hope that you open again as soon as possible. And uh, listener, I just recommend that if you happen to be in the area, or even if you're not, it's worth you going along to uh, have a ski at Snow Centre in Hemel. Now, one man who I'm sure has probably skied there at some point in his career is Peter Hardy, uh, the award-winning ski journalist. And he's a man, and I hope he won't mind me saying this, he's probably been skiing longer than most of us have been alive. He has been in the industry for a long time, and I was lucky enough to interview him last week. And, you know, I could have talked to Peter for hours. He is so interesting, and he told me all about how he learned to ski in Lech in the 1960s. But here I've just got a couple of segments where he talks about going on tour uh, with James Blunt, uh, also skiing with Graham Bell on 19th century uh, skis and what the uh, the disco car used to be like uh, on the way out to Austria back in the 60s. And in terms of um, you know publications, you've you know you've produced a number of books over your career, but uh, I was interested that uh, there was a sort of um, a diversification into a different uh, area with uh, a book which I think the title is called uh, "Different Country, Same State." where you followed James Blunt, the singer, on his uh, global tour, I think. And I wondered whether, because I know that he's very keen on Verbier and maybe he, he might live in Verbier, he certainly has a residence there. Is that how you came into contact with James Blunt? How did that work out? Yeah, this was my kind of midlife crisis, I guess. Uh, if you go <laughs> off and write this book about James. I'd actually known him for uh, since he was a young teenager because his mum used to work for us and we, we had a, a photo library at the time and she used to run the photo library for us and we became great family friends so I got to know James and as he said we you know I, I knew saw him go through university and then into the army and we spent a Christmas together once I, I've, I've sung the 12 days of Christmas with him my one friend of fame as a singer I can tell you <laughs> and uh, we, we, we so we, we as I say, a great family friends. And then uh, I put the idea to him that when he became famous, perhaps it would be a good idea to have me along to be a fly on the wall while he was on tour. And he thought the idea was absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> a guy who's the age of, of, of his father uh, doing this and indeed, you know, twice the age at least of all the band. And it, it wouldn't work at all. But I convinced him that we should sort of have a little go at this. And I used to turn up in different places for the first sort of few weeks. And then we thought, well, hang on, this is such a ridiculous idea. But maybe it's a really good one. So, <laughs> so I, it took me a little while to be um, promoted to the level at which I could travel on the tour bus with them. But gradually they realized that actually I've had a, a long and varied life. And I've, you know, I've seen it all and got a T-shirt. And I was non-judgmental on anything that they might do, or, or indeed I might do. <laughs> and uh, and we had a we had a tremendous time. I think I, I can't remember how many uh, uh, gigs I went to, but in, in many hundreds. And we went all over the uh, went all over the world with them. And because of my job, I could sort of just turn up somewhere. So we were in they were in Australia, and they didn't feel sort of strange that I you know they were having a drink in a bar one evening, and I just walked in. I mean, James knew I was coming, but he never told anyone. And uh, they'd say, oh, hello, Peter, you know, what are you doing here? And we just carried on for, a, I'd stay there for a week or two and travel with them and uh, get a bit more detail of what was going on and then go away again. So I, on and off for about four years, I, I went on tour with them. Great. And then the book was published uh, in, in 2009 or something yeah, like that? 2009, yeah. 
and that and that just is the backstage story of his tour, is it? Yeah, it's it's the it's the backstage story. It's the book. You're not you know what goes on tour should stay on tour. This didn't. <laughs> uh, I have to say that James had the uh, uh, you know part of the deal was that he could change anything he wanted, or you know, he had overall rights for it. And uh, every time I took out something because I thought it was a bit dodgy, he said, "No, oh, no, we want more detail on that." You know, so it was uh, it, it it was quite tricky when we got to the level of. Um, uh, the, the, you know, when you write a book, it then has to be checked by libel lawyers, and they, the libel lawyer was a slightly prim lady, and she came back with uh, 276 cases of potential libel in the book. <laughs> you know, the publishers threw their hands in the spell. I said, no, 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 just go through them one by one, and, uh, and that's what I did. And uh, she kept coming back to me saying, well, if you're saying this, it means that you know, so and so was under the influence of drugs, and uh, and that you were drunk. And uh, say, yeah, yeah, that's right. And when the book is published, he's going to deny that, and we're going to be sued for millions. No, 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 I'll get an affidavit from him now saying that's what happened. <laughs> the idea was to take uh, skis from 1890, which was even before my time, <laughs> from 1890, and right up until the 60s uh, and 10 year periods, and see how skiing had progressed and changed over that period. So. When we got to Chavinia, which is where we did it in summer, uh, we, we had all the right clothing, Graham and I. You know, we were dressed up in Sherlock Holmes-like clothing. And uh, uh, the producer of the, of the movie said to me, look, Peter, what we really want is for Graham to fall over. Ourselves <laughs> we really want him to fall over in the middle of all this. So your job now is to find him the oldest and most difficult skis you can find and, and some really uncomfortable boots. So uh, I, I, I rose to the occasion and uh, I gave him a pair of, uh, which I own, a pair of 1890 skis. They are, they are enormous planks. I've never actually measured how long, but they're certainly sort of, uh, certainly pushing towards 220, I should think. And, and they're wide and there's no side cut. What's a side cut, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and the binding is uh, um, a piece of metal that's been made in a local blacksmith shop. Uh, as a sort of toe piece, and uh, and this comes around to a, a a strap at the back, a telemark strap if you like, but it was pretty early telemark, uh, which was and in this case that the leather on that was pretty hard and old as you can imagine. They've been sitting in a house with central heating for the last fifty years or something. So I softened up the leather a bit anyway and uh, gave him these. He, he looked a bit taken aback, Graham, when he looked at these, <laughs> and the boots were a pair of boots that. You would have worn on a farm in 1890, 1900, maybe they're a little bit later, but they were just hobnail boots. And they've been converted by someone so that the toe piece was sort of cut straight along the top and it would fit into this piece of metal, just about. And there was a, a, a groove, a handmade groove in the back which held the strap in place, just about. So Graham looked at these, sort of, you know, it's slightly sort of strange. I chose myself a pair of 1960 skis, about the ones. Next. <laughs> Head metal skis, about the ones where I came in on, just about, uh, and been a pair of really horrible boots. They were the first uh, first clip boots. That, when you went up, when you went up a tea bar, the clips used to join onto your neighbour's boot, which made it. Yes, I remember that. And uh, so, I, anyway, I, I got these on my feet, and up the glacier we went. Um, we got to the top, and we got out, and I put mine on, and Graham put his on, and he just he just skied off. You know, he'd off like he'd been doing it all his life. He just 
We can telemark, which I can't, which I have to say is a huge advantage, but um, it, it was remarkable. It, it just looked graceful and beautiful, and the turns were inevitably very slow because that thing took a long time to get around the corner. But he was great with it, and he really just enjoyed it. And I, so I thought, well, they're going with it too. So I, I went on, and I put my skis on. And I, you know, when you're skiing, you do something, you, uh, somewhere up in your head, uh, your brain says, it's time for a turn, Peter. So that signal then slowly goes down your head, down <laughs> your ankles, and you turn. Well, in this case, you, the signal went from my brain. It got to about my knee, and then no further. Nothing happened at all. You know, it <laughs> couldn't go around. Because, of course, you have to ski, if you're thinking with a, with a fixed binding, as I was, in a very different style to what we ski today. To make this, and the ski did 100, you, you had to do 100% of the work. The ski didn't do anything much unless you told it to. Whereas yeah. now, if you're skis, just ski on their own to a degree. Anyway, we did, when we did, the, we did the filming, and at the end of the day, in three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, we were right up the top on the glacier, obviously, and that was the only station open. But Graham decided he would ski down a closed piece closed 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 glacier down to the mid station where the, the lift did actually stop so he could get on there. And he and the cameraman, who was a really good skier, but he was on today's skis, uh, off they went down down the glacier and we just watched out of the window as we came down the lift. And he just skied beautifully all the way down. I mean remarkable. That's the true mark of a good skier. I wish I could ski like that. Well, when you've been to five Winter Olympics, maybe that gives you the pedigree to be able to uh, to do that sort of thing. But the train itself was a remarkable journey. The most important thing, as far as I remember, was that it, it was a hodgepodge of carriages put together, quite run-down carriages, they seemed to me. And there was a, a disco car. That was the real excitement. And the, the disco car, I can visualize it now. It had, uh, well, of course, because there were no sort of um, gimbals to keep the thing straight. Like the old trains, like you see a sort of movie of the Orient Express or something, you were bashed around as you moved down the corridor of the train. <laughs> it was exactly the same thing inside the disco carriage. So anyone trying to dance and sort of falling into everybody else, not helped by gallons of, uh, of <laughs> beer, double diamond would have been the beer, which people were consuming, and spilling all over the floor. <laughs> and the music was provided by a, um, a record player, a, a gramophone almost, a record player. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was on well that actually was on gimbals and you could buy these things to go into cars and my my, my much older brother had a uh, had, had one in his car i remember you know, as one of these record players where you it, it was sort of mounted on springs so they try and absorb some of the shock of driving and you you whacked a 45 um a 45 record and, and anyone knows what that is a 45 <laughs> in, in, in the sort of slot and away it went but of course, the needle would sort of bounce around. And every time you hit a point on the, in the, on the charter train, it jumped enormously. So you sort of <laughs> got the rhythm. It all seemed quite fun. Uh, Chemi, can I ask, do you know uh, Peter Hardy at all? I think I've met him at various industry events. Um, and I do remember he's an incredible storyteller. So that's why you can connect a person with their stories. And as soon as you said Lek, I was like, oh, I know. I've heard him talk about that. Well, yeah. I mean, I didn't even mention just then. But if you listen to the uh, the Ski Podcast special, which we released earlier this week, you can also hear him talking about how he had a, uh, a death sentence put on him in Uganda in the 1970s when he was accused of being a spy. So with a career like that, you can understand uh, how, uh, you know, we turned it into a complete special. 
listener other other uh, ski podcast specials you can listen to if you want to track back through our catalog include about train travel electric vehicles picture organic clothing there's loads of stuff in there but let's just jump back to the alps uh, for a moment uh, and someone else who i was lucky enough to interview earlier this week uh, was tim longstaff from Sapordi brewery now they're a boutique craft brewery based out in la plane and i talked to him about some of the beers they uh, make I'm joined today by Tim Longstaff from Supportia Brewing Company, which is a craft beer which is brewed out in the French Alps. Hi there, Tim. How are you? Hi, Ian. I'm very good. Had a little little ski this morning, so I can't complain. Oh, yeah. Now you're making me jealous already. Not only do you have <laughs> beer all around you, but you've got snow around you as well. Well, yeah. tell me, whereabouts are you then in the French Alps? So we're just outside of M. Plan. So for people who don't know the kind of Tarantins Valley too well, that's you know, we're within an hour's drive of Val d'Isère, Tien, Les Arcs, La Plan, and the, the three valleys. Um, so really central location to get to some of the big ski areas in, in the French Alps. Right. Yeah. Lots of the big uh, uh, resorts around there. And I know you started uh, the brewery in 2018. Why? What, what prompts you, apart from a, a love of drinking beer, to start your own brewery? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of we we're trying to, um, you know, exploit the market a bit because, I think for years and years, you know, even going back as, you know, chatting to my dad when he'd be going on ski holidays, sort of the, the, tra- the traditional thing was that you just drank European lager and there was, there was no alternative. Um, and, you know, I was growing up in the UK when, and going to university when the craft beer boom really kicked off in the UK. So I was, I was drinking all the, the kind of new styles of IPA and pale ales that were coming out. And I did my first winter in the Alps in 2013 and kind of thought, a brewery would be quite cool in the mountains. I never thought much of it for a lot longer down the line. And I kind of assumed someone else would do it. I didn't actually think it would be me and uh, me and my business partner. <laughs> that's great. And what about the name? Where does that come from? So that's the um, Sephardia is the kind of old Latin word for the, the Savoir. So a kind of direct translation is the uh, Pied de Sapin. It's like the land of the uh, land of pine trees, land of fir trees, basically, um, which we are kind of looking out the window here, totally surrounded by. And uh, we actually, so, so the so kind of the, the Sapan um, has then kind of gone on to influence our logo. So we got the kind of tree tree logo. And it's also used, we actually use the pine needles in our um, most popular beer. Okay, um, so what type of uh, beers do you do then? You've got a, a range of several of them, I take it. Yeah, we've got a core range of four beers and kind of a couple of beers that, maybe appear every now and then on depending on if we've got the capacity so we do um two ipas so there's there's lost in the woods which is our, our flagship beer and that's the one that we filter through pine needles we've got um cosmic ipa which is named after the um cosmic Coolwar in chamonix and that's our kind of more american slightly stronger in alcohol ipa we've got 73 which is our pilsner um it's called 73 because that's the sort of postcode for the area of France we're in. Yeah, the um, Departement for Savoie. Yeah, exactly. And um, our other beer, our new beer that we launched this summer, so it's not really kind of had much chance to be seen in the wild yet because of lockdowns and bar closures. It's called um, Liquid Fog, which is a hazy, a hazy pale ale. So uh, unfortunately, I think with the situation at the moment, uh, we're not, we might not be trying it this winter, but maybe in the summer and definitely next winter. So if people want to try some of those beers you just mentioned from the Supportia range, where, whereabouts can people do that? 
Yep, so depending on where you're skiing, you should hopefully be able to find us in the French Alps. If you're in the Haute Savoie, um, we will have Sockets next winter in Morzine and Leger. If you're over in the summer and the winter in Chamonix, we've got numerous Sockets there, to name a few. Uh, Bighorn, Bighorn, Beckett and Wild, the Delice, uh, the Vert Hotel. Hopefully I've not missed anyone out. And then <laughs> if you're in the Savoie, so we will be available in all major ski, ski resorts in, in the Savoie. So that's kind of Espaskilly, um, Trois Valley and the Paradis Ski. So a few areas there in team, you've got Box Box Bar, which is in Lavashire, which is a, they do amazing burgers as well. So they're worth checking out. And Marybelle, you've got a really cool bar called the um, Brewer's Den, which is specializes in craft beers. So they'll have okay. quite, a few of our, quite a few of our beers on. And we should be in a few more hotels as well this winter. So if you're staying in a hotel, you might be lucky enough to see our beer on, on tap in the hotel bar as well. Great. Well, you know, amongst the many things that we're going to look forward to, you made us jealous at the beginning talking about the snow and, you know, we'll get the chance yeah. to do that again. But also just to sit down after a day skiing and, uh, and have a beer is a pleasure. And, uh, you know, I'm not a beer expert, but I think those people who uh, who are will certainly enjoy a craft beer that has been brewed out in the Alps and something that's been filtered filtered through pine needles sounds amazing pine needles yeah we've got some videos of that on our social media channels if you um yeah so if you do a search for support your brewing will will appear on all the all major okay great well i'll drop a note i'll drop some links and maybe a video into the show notes as well and otherwise tim thanks very much for speaking to us and and good luck uh, in getting everything ready for the summer and next winter perfect cheers ian uh, Tim also mentioned in that interview there how he'd been ski touring, very popular uh, in the Alps at the moment. Uh, but something that hasn't been done quite so often, and just in our Team GB segment, I'd like to mention uh, Jan Farrell's retirement as a speed skier. Shemi, I wondered if you'd ever tried speed skiing or if you'd ever uh, met or interviewed uh, Jan Farrell in your time. Um, actually, we're doing a feature on aerodynamics next week, and I do ah. Over 95 miles an hour, um, but it's just something that we set up on the side of the hill. I have to say, I, I was really surprised when I was told how fast I was going because I, it felt super mellow to me. I feel like I could have gone a lot faster. Um, but I actually um, Instagram messaged Jan not that long ago because I was doing something in a wind tunnel. I wanted to borrow one of his helmets to see the wind drag difference. And I was working for Stratium, which is a data analysis company. And we're talking about you know how much marginal gains can bring your business. And I used his helmet and it made an 8% difference um, compared to my downhill helmet. In, okay. In- wind resistance and drag and i couldn't believe that just the helmet the thing is because everyone in uh, in silverstone in this wind tunnel was like well, why would why don't you use it then why didn't you? um the thing is my shoulders i was like stuck in one position so i could tuck in it i could get in the aerodynamic shoes position but i couldn't come up and turn so i was like it's a bit impractical uh for downhill skiing because we've got to be a bit more versatile with the shapes that we manipulate our bodies into and um, but he was so friendly he said that to me and i've just heard that he's retired to spend more yes. time with family it was a lovely post actually i thought you know he's put sport in perspective yeah, well, that's great that he's helped you out. And sorry, you said that feature about aerodynamics will be in one of the future episodes of Ski Sunday. Is that right? Yes. So that's next week. I've just uh, I've just finished filming it and we're showing it next week. OK, great. Well, I look forward to seeing that. And that's good timing uh, as well. 
Excellent. Well, I just want to run through a couple of reviews. Sometimes we don't have very many. This week we've got loads of them. Uh, so I'll do my best. Uh, Susie Jane said, uh, uh, just say I love the podcast. Uh, not being able to ski at the moment is made easier by your interviews. Uh, Chris Filey, not much chance of getting on the slopes. The ski podcast brings some relief to us all. Uh, ski Bum 70 said, often copied, never surpassed, which is very kind of you. Uh, Jill Taylor, keep it up. It's very enjoyable. James Hawkins, another great listen. Matt Hayes, love this pod. Um, someone called Eggfried 100, who's on the Snowheads forum, said, I've listened to quite a few other podcasts, but the ski podcast is by far the best for me. Great content interesting guests plus it's kept us informed through the shall we say interesting last 12 months well you know that's a, um, a real compliment and thank you very much and if a uh, listener you do want to review us uh, it'd be great if you could give us a review on itunes because that does help other people find us now i had another comment from uh, a listener uh, called jeffrey fantle who contacts us from israel and he said i love your show uh, but can you walk me through the logistics of renting a car in Geneva to go to France. Now, he says there's a need for a special car visa, which I've never heard of, although I think he, I know what he might be referring to. Winter tyres, it all seems confusing. Uh, I can't be the only one who feels that way. So um, I'm going to have a go at answering that first, because although I tend to travel by train, I've, I've flown into Geneva and got a car lots and lots of times. And my first recommendation is when you hire a car, you can either get it from the Swiss side or the French side. And I always get it from the Swiss side. You don't want to be faffing around trying to cross the border into France and driving it, particularly when you hand it back. It takes ages to get to that French side of the airport. It's much easier to go on the Swiss side. And another tip I'd offer is it's often quicker just to walk to the car hire place rather than wait for the bus because it can take ages to come and it's literally five minutes or maybe even four minutes to walk there uh, personally i always book it through holiday autos because i think it's a really good price now jeffrey you asked about uh winter tires i personally don't normally book chains because most of the cars they rent out already have winter tires but you do need to check that and I have been offered an automatic before, which I've always declined because you don't want to have an automatic if you're driving uh, in the snow. And the other thing you mentioned is that special car visa, which I think by that you mean uh, the the kind of motorway payage sticker yeah. on the motorways, the vignette. Thank you, Shemi, for driving in Switzerland. And all hire cars will be uh, equipped with those um, already. Uh Chemi, got any uh, anything else you want to add to that about hire car from Geneva? Um, I think always uh, shop around. Um, sometimes really last minute you can get better deals. If you're organized, sometimes you get a bit stung for that. Um, I actually agree about the kind of the Swiss French side. If you weigh up all the costs once you've done the vignette, it's quite similar. Um, we actually go to France side and get a bus to the Super U who rent cars very cheaply. Ooh, um, good tip. More on a long-term rental. Uh, always get a four by four. Um, and I actually always get chains, Ian, but I think the thing is right. like an avi pack. You need to know how to fit them. Hmm. The number of people who get chains and think they're safe because they've got chains in the back of the car, but they don't actually know how to fit them. I mean, I, I'm the first one to admit that there are so many different types of chains out there and I've broken two already this season. Hmm. You, I'm, a, I'm a YouTuber and I just watch how to use it. Um, but um, yeah, I think I think like you said, if you want to make it easy, always walk when you've rented a car at Geneva. 
you know, it's so near and then everyone's piling onto this bus, especially with social distancing now, this will happen in our future, just walk there. Um, but yeah, if you want, a, if you do want a good deal, the, the Super U, it's in France, just down the road, um, big supermarket there as well. But when you, if you do do that, I just have to say, and then you're going across to the border in Switzerland, you have to buy the vignette. And you also, if you've done a big shop at that Super U, I think you're only allowed three grams, three, three kilos of meat. I got stung for that the other day. <laughs> I was going across okay. the border and I had too much meat. <laughs> and and you turned it into uh, a, a pork offering for Ed that he declined and, and <laughs> uh, Ian, anything to add on on hiring a car in Geneva, perhaps? Well, I've I've hired a car. I can't really offer any tips. The only thing I have done that quite regularly and driven up to Morzine, the J area, or further on to Verbier. Um, the only thing I would say is don't be intimidated by it. I think a lot of people are put off by the thought of driving abroad and and Shemi's alluded to the conditions and the change and things. Actually, you know, quite often, certainly when the kids were younger, it was our, it was the best way for us, you know, to take all our kids and do that with a particularly cheap flights into Geneva. So I'd certainly recommend it. And then by having a car, obviously it gives you a lot of flexibility when you get to a resort. So you can go out and, you know, visit other resorts. You know, if you're there for a week, it certainly gives you the opportunity to go and see other other places as well as just being based in one place. So that, that would be my advice. Obviously, we're talking about Geneva now, but um, we should say that if you are flying in and you are renting a car from other countries, you should check your international driver's permit, which is a paper piece of card. It's a very insignificant paper piece of card, but some countries, I think Spain requires Brits to have one and a few other countries. Um, and you go to your post office, you get it, it's free, but you do have to have your uh, a face shot. Um, and I have been asked, over the last year to, to show that a few times. Right. Okay. That's good. One final tip I'd say as well is obviously if you um, don't take the uh, petrol tank back empty, because it will cost you a lot more. If you're going to Geneva, there is actually a petrol station within 30 seconds of the actual drop-off area for the uh, high cars and you can you can refill it there or if you want to be really canny when i've been down um coming back from the annecy direction i've worked out that if you stop and you fill up the car in the last petrol station on the motorway and then drive economically to geneva you can then drop it off there and they accept that as full so that's uh, that will save you about you know two euros 50 or something like that Great. Well, thanks very much, uh, Jeffrey, for that question. And listen, if you have any questions, please feel free to uh, send them in. I uh, just want to uh, give a quick mention for the Ski Podcast survey. I'd like to thank uh, everyone who uh, gave us their feedback. What I've done is I've posted the full results uh, uh, online, but some really interesting ideas for content about what people would like to hear more of and what they'd like to hear less of. And clearly you can't please everybody, but there were some really good ideas in there. Uh, and also a couple of people asked about stickers, which we gave away, I guess, a couple of years ago. Well, the good news is we have some more stickers. So if you'd like a, a ski podcast sticker, just uh, drop us a line uh, via email or via Facebook and we'll send some to you. Uh, and finally, the survey itself, that's really just to ensure the podcast is as good as it possibly can be, because I spend a lot of time going into it. Uh, and, you know, really the support that I've had, uh, I mentioned last week that you can buy me a coffee as a as a way of kind of showing some thanks. You just go to buy me a coffee forward slash the ski podcast. I don't actually drink coffee, but you can buy me a cuppa. And 
the number of people who've uh, who've kind of donated is uh, really overwhelmed me with a bit uh, by the support we've had in the last week and it, you know it's genuinely lifting and makes me feel validated the amount of uh, time I spend on the podcast I'd like to thank people like uh, Matt Hayes Michael Gold Mark McGarry Julie Slaughter Doug Newman Rachel Westbrook and uh, Joanna Yellowly Spound as well so that's it for uh, this episode episode 67 of the ski podcast uh, next time round, I'm going to have Dan Egan on the uh, show. We're going to be talking a little bit about Switzerland and uh, Grindelwald. I'm still hoping to get an interview with uh, Ed Lee uh, Chemi, so you can mention to him how much you enjoyed it, and we'll get him on the podcast as well. And in the meantime, you can follow me uh, at Skipedia, and you can follow the show at the Ski Podcast on Twitter and Facebook. I'd like to thank my guests today, uh, Chemi. Alcott and Ian Brown, thanks very much for your time and for joining me. And as always, to Switzerland Tourism for their support. And finally, thank you, listener, for listening. So until next time, goodbye. Hi there, listener. Ian here. I just wanted to let you know that you can now support the Ski Podcast at buymeacoffee.com. Researching, recording, editing and publishing the pod takes up a lot of my time. And don't get me wrong, I really enjoy it. You know, I love talking with people about skiing. But if you do enjoy listening to the podcast and you'd like to support us, then you can literally buy me a coffee, or in my case it would be a cup of tea, but the idea is the same. So just go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast. Thanks very much.